Welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So today joining us, we have Mary Leroy. Mary is a nursing officer, currently working for the Mental Welfare Commission. Been there for about five years, but has got a background in learning disabilities, mental health, and a long history of being involved with autism. Mary, thanks so much for coming on to chat to us. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. So autism, probably quite an unusual niche. How did you get involved with it? I have many years of experience of working in autism. Um, I don't know how I was so drawn to it, but certainly I have a background ranging from when I was a community nurse and I worked with children, autistic children who had behavioural issues. I did some family work and parental work supporting parents of children who had autism. I've also been involved in social skills training with one of the local colleges. The groups I ran there were linked in primarily with a speech and language therapist and we targeted kind of adolescents and younger people. So that's the further back stuff. The more recent input in relation to autism has linked with a themed visit we did in the Mental Welfare Commission Scotland, and that was looking at autism and complex needs. So that's my most recent okay. piece of work. I guess the other side of the coin, my experience of autism is pretty limited, but what springs to mind was a car crash I was at a little while ago now, mm-hmm. where there was a young autistic kid who was completely freaked out by the experience and the fact that there were lots of vehicles, flashing lights, people, noise. And it's never something that we really cover on pre-hospital courses, but actually it it was quite stressful for me, even out with the medical injuries, just trying to deal with the psychological. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Do you want me maybe just to talk a little bit about what autism is? That would be perfect, Yeah. yeah. Okay. One of the definitions for autism, and and the one that's most used, I suppose, is that autism is a lifelong developmental disability. It affects how people communicate and interact with the world, and it typically appears during early childhood. Certainly with my experience now, the medical staff and the clinical teams are diagnosing autism kind of from under the age of three, which is pretty young. I suppose the main feature of autism that we think about is they talk about the triad of impairment. And this describes the main features of the autistic person. Okay, so they may have difficulty with their social interaction. And that can really be about forming friendships sometimes inappropriate behaviours. Socially, you know, if you're having a conversation, they might not know how to turn take. So that's one of the main prongs of the triad. The other is social communication. So again, that's developing language skills, difficulty with nonverbal and verbal communication. And the third prong is rigidity in thinking and difficulty with social imagination. 
Now, one we add on that's been added on quite recently is we're learning so much more about sensory responses and the difficulties that autistic people have with their senses. I'll go back to that in a little while. And I suppose, you know, when you think about what does an autistic person look like, how do we know? And certainly in the position you're in, you know, you're going to be meeting all kinds of people and it's going to be a first impact of meeting. I suppose because it's a spectrum, it can affect people so differently and to varying degrees. It's hard to really describe in some ways. And I always think really if we go back to that, they're individuals and they're unique. That's how I hold the concept a little in my head. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess when you're talking about this this child that was appearing very, very distressed and almost in a meltdown situation, I'll go back to that in a wee while, that will have been linked with this whole sensory overload, the unpredictability of what's happening for the child in that situation. And I suppose thinking about neurotypicals, that, by the way, is an accepted term for <laughs> the autistic world called People who are non-autistic, when we're in a, a car crash, when you're in any emergency situation, for us neurotypicals, it's really stressful. For somebody who's autistic, it's even more. And there's so many different senses that get stressed by even beyond a car crash. You know, a carer being unwell or somebody being acutely yes. ill. There's, there's so much going on that it's yes. it's got to be phenomenally difficult. Yes, absolutely. The other thing, when I was thinking about our conversation, I was thinking I've had quite a lot of communication and links with the autistic society, individuals with autism. And when I met groups of people, I think what I really wanted to say really is that some people out there with the diagnosis really have the premise that it's not a disability, it's a different ability. And I like that. I kind of hold on to that. Because really, even I suppose coming from a medical clinical background, we talk a lot about the deficits of something. But actually, there are some positives that we can embrace and the autistic person embraces about their conditions for some people. I suppose I'm thinking about the attention to detail, their ability to absorb facts, they're very visual learners, deep focus, and I suppose... Where do these people sit in our world? Where can we fit them into our world and our working world? And I think the worldview is changing in relation to that too. And I know people like Google are seeking out individuals with autism and their ability to function really well in certain jobs. But support, that's gone a little bit off piste, but I just wanted to say that. <laughs> it's an interesting point because particularly from an emergency medicine point of view we see the world in pretty narrow focus and actually we're going to rock up with flashy lights and hopefully get people healthy again there's a whole world that they live beyond the emergency that often yes yes absolutely what's the kind of prevalence how many autistic folk are there from the reading and the preparation work we did for our asd themed visit certainly 2018, I think, was the nearest stats and its approximations. We've certainly got about over 50,000 people in Scotland with autism 
you know, there's been a lot of policy priority in relation to autism too. We've got the Scottish Strategy for Autism. We've got the SCI National Guidance 145, which links in with assessment and diagnosis. And, you know, a question that comes in with prevalence for a lot of people is why does it look like we have more people with autism now? Why is that? And I think, you know, over the past decade, maybe decade and a half, numbers have been increased, but I think it's really relating to public awareness, better pathways for assessment and diagnosis. And of course, we're diagnosing earlier. I was going to say, I I wonder if an element of that is also that folk with autism are not hidden away anymore and actually out and living their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. And some living very, very independent lives and with good community support and some not needing that. So it's so varying. We know the prevalence is higher in males. So it's four to three against male and female. Females, I mean, that's a whole different conversation, I think. We're slower to diagnose women, females. They present quite differently from our male population too. And one of the overarching theories is that many females are able to mask through better social skills some of their communication challenges. So in a way, it kind of makes it harder to diagnose that our women. There are other factors, but that's one of the, as I said, overarching concepts really for females. It's interesting, certainly in terms of presentation. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the issues is trying to pick out in a sort of an acute situation mm-hmm. who is or might be presenting with features of autism <sighs> or, or associated symptoms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think. See, when you were describing situations where maybe you might arrive and you wouldn't know at all, there would only be the person and yourselves responding to an emergency. There might be situations where, like you were describing, the children, where anybody who's with the person can draw your attention to that they are autistic. Sometimes autistic people themselves, depending on their functioning level, will tell you quite openly that they're autistic too. Arriving at an emergency situation, it's certainly challenging. And I had thought about the kind of difficulties that you might have with, with, you know, even basic history taking and communication with an autistic person. I mean, when you think, you know, they're going to have difficulties with interpreting both your verbal and your nonverbal communication. And you will have, Dave, you'll have the range of people who have very limited speech, sometimes no speech. You might have very good language. You might have somebody who struggles to understand receptive language, but is very expressive. And that can really throw you off when you're thinking somebody's actually making quite a bit of sense of what you're saying, but it might be very difficult for them. I think one of the things that come to mind, and it's kind of a bit of a golden rule when you're interacting with autistic people, from certainly from my perspective, and I think it really needs to be knocked into us when we're dealing with stress. And it is, we know that our neurotypicals take a little bit longer to process information and answer questions when you're under stress. This is really marked in an autistic person. Sometimes you can ask a question and you can be waiting almost like 45 seconds for a response, which can feel quite long in a gap in a conversation. But often the processing situation is very slow. I would kind of say it's trying to hold on to a little of your own anxiety and giving the person that space and time. If you go in to ask a repeated question, 
the person might start to get frustrated. They might start to feel this sort of sensory overload. So that's one kind of tip I think is quite important. Some of your general principles that you, you probably know as a team working for the ambulance about keeping your language simple, specific, concrete. As I said, really allow time for a response. For autism, though, for autistic people, eye contact's a really interesting one. All the research in academia really supports that there's a lack of eye contact. Things like using the person's name, which is a basic communication, but certainly in an autistic person, it's really important. And you can say, can you look at me? But there is a rub for me with eye contact. Having worked for many years with autistic children, I kind of saw, for some people we used to do, look at me, you know, say whatever the child's name was, look at me. But for some children, this kind of staring into the middle distance, or maybe it almost looks like sometimes it's slightly over your shoulder. As you're asking a question, I kind of felt that sometimes for some people, that's them really focusing. So it's a little bit of a weird one from my perspective and weighing it against my experience too. We spend a lot of time in med school being taught to yeah. make eye contact and ask those broad, open questions that are quite yes. woolly. And I get the impression that that's probably you know, almost the worst yes. thing to do. <laughs> that's probably it, yeah. It's keeping it as short, clear and unambiguous as possible. Also, if possible, avoid negative terms, you know, and that I was thinking about in an emergency, it's that difficult. It's not that you don't ever say stop to an autistic person, but if you're working with someone or interacting with somebody who's really quite stressed, it's better to reframe it into let's do something. So give the direction of what you want to do really quite clearly to the individual. That seems to help. When you think about sensory issues, pay attention to your volume, your tone, and a moderate tone, supposedly one of the easiest for an autistic person to work with. Again, breaking down instructions into steps. So you're avoiding long, complex situations. So I guess when you're in that emergency situation, it is like maybe thinking if the person's autistic, try and break it down into little chunks, get them to interact and do something and then move on from it. With communication wider in the wider context, though, you will find autistic people, as I said earlier, they're visual learners. So things like social stories for children, they use picture exchange communication systems, written information. This might be after more after the emergency situation. You know, these things, they may have something with them to augment their communication. So in that case, you can, if it's there, you can actually maybe attempt to use it. But just thinking about it in that context helps how you might interact. I've seen folk using almost like picture books to try and I guess, pictorialise yes. the verbal yes, sign yes. language. And certainly, you know, with my nursing, we used to, if we were prepping people to go in for any examinations, you know, say a breast examination or anything they were required to go into hospital for procedures, you know, investigation procedures, we used to work certainly with pictures. Autistic people really respond to predictability and routine we know they have difficulty transitioning in situations. So in these situations, 
the kind of pictorial representation helps to augment and practice something for them. And in turn, the principle of that is to reduce the stress for the individual or to reduce the individual's anxieties. Interesting. Yeah, I, I guess it's all very difficult to it do is. in a sort of acute it setting. Is. And particularly, I'm aware that physical contact can be quite a kind of yes. flashpoint. And yet for us, examining patients is pretty critical in terms of making plans and ruling in or out injury. What are your thoughts about how to approach examining an autistic person? I suppose the communication issues, again, it would be how you communicate and how you would try to express this. If I was in an emergency situation too, I think it might be helpful to consider if there is anybody there who can help with this kind of process or who knows the person a little bit better than you, where you could have a very quick conversation about how do they communicate going to have to do this what's the best way of approaching it so think of going back to your sort of acute medical emergency and seeing somebody in a meltdown so I think some of the kind of things you might use in that might give you some consideration for your examination processes certainly if it was something more routine <laughs> you would be doing prep for somebody who is highly anxious, but you guys just don't have that as an option. It's just not going to happen for you. So I suppose when we think about the acute medical emergency and maybe having to manage that and your sort of meltdowns or your shutdowns that people have when they're really distressed, you do tend to see them coming, to be honest. The anxiety for the individual really starts to peak. You know, they start to maybe ask for reassurance in a really frightened way because their anxiety is through the roof. For some people, though, the slight other thing that is worth remembering is that autistic people sometimes do a thing called stimming. I don't know if you've heard of that, where they actually do a repetitive behaviour, which it can sometimes be hand flapping. It can sometimes just be rubbing something or moving themselves very, very quickly. And it's a kind of quite a sensory self-soothing thing. So it's quite a difficult one to work out whether they're actually trying to bring themselves down a bit or they're on the way up with their levels of distress. And again, we know that autistic people have real difficulty with emotional regulation. So if somebody is really, really that distressed, sometimes you really just can't stop it. It's going to come. So what will help, you know, and again, maybe with your interviewing uh, or with your examinations and anything, it's maybe looking to see this, if the person is going to become that distressed. It's about giving somebody time to recover. You can check in, you'll see as anxiety starts to reduce. It might be a long while too. Sometimes the levels of distress are up there for some time. And putting a time limit on that's really quite difficult. Quite helpful if you were in an emergency, I'm thinking, and you had somebody who knew the person, use them. And they'll also be able to say to you, this might last X amount of minutes. They'll be okay in a little while. Give them space. Now, when we come back to kind of sensory stuff, and this would go for your medical examinations and in an emergency situation, if possible, it's about making space. Try and create a sort of quiet space as best as you can. If you're in the road, you're moving people on. 
If you're in a, a building where there's bright lights, think about reducing the lights, loud music. Anything that causes a lot of information to start to fire into somebody who's very autistic and very distressed, they will go into information overload. So you're almost trying to reduce everything and make the environment as calm as you can. Some individuals do have calming strategies that they can use, that they can help. It's going to be difficult in an emergency because you may not know them. However, if there was somebody with them, they might be able to help. I think it's always about trying to stay calm yourself, which can be challenging, especially if you've not seen somebody in this level of distress. So it's tricky. And I think, you know, when we think wider about treatment of anxiety and its prevalence in autism. The treatments are really very similar to what you and I would have really. It's about identifying triggers, relaxation or talking therapies, you know, maybe medication at the very end of the juncture. The other thing that's used out there in the autism world, there's an app. Some of the things that are assisting individuals with autism are actually technological things now, which I think is really fascinating and offers quite a lot because it's kind of easier to manage for some people who have got a lot of sensory stuff going on. So what they have is there's an app called Brain and Hand. I'm not familiar with it, but I've heard people talk about it. It's very popular to help with scheduling activities, reducing anxiety. You know, they feel quite safe with it and they're quite in control. So that's another app that's out there being used. I'm sure there'll be other ones. For reduction of stress, people do prepare for going into a hospital situation. And some people do have, again, you probably wouldn't have this in an emergency, but they do have things like passports in relation to their physical health, which is about, you know, how to prepare someone. What's the best way of communicating? If something's quite tricky, you know, how to best approach it. But again, I think it's very difficult in an emergency situation. But there are some general tips that might be around that might help give you some food for thought. That's really useful. One thing that jumped into my head was around consent. A lot of the things that we end up needing to do with folk is painful. So I'm thinking putting in a drip or splinting a broken leg where ultimately we're aiming with the best intent to try and make them more comfortable, but you've yeah. got to get them over a hill first. Any suggestions as to how we could manage that and, and how to consent an autistic patient beyond yeah, just I suppose, acting in their best interest? Um, I'm, I'm just thinking about even if I was interacting and maybe you were going in to take blood so you were to do something, doing physical examinations, BPs and everything. I remember It certainly used to help me, but it's going to be difficult for you guys to do, would be allowing the person to very clearly see what's going to happen, telling them what's going to happen, keeping very calm yourself as you're actually going through the process would be one way of working. Consent and capacity, I suppose, certainly under Part 5 of the Adults with Incapacity Act, you know, clearly states that common law, you can treat patients in an emergency situation, you know, it remains in place really. And I would imagine quite a lot of people fall into this category because you're either preserving life or a serious deterioration by the time an ambulance is coming out. And it's really about your clinical judgment and the principles of the act. I suppose... If you get into a situation where you're doubting the individual's capacity to consent, you would either treat under that 
or if it's something that you're taking somebody back to a hospital and you've got time to collate some information to see if there is a section 47 in place that would allow you to treat there are carers, if there are families, you could check this. And if not, I mean, in some situations, you might have to, if it was something that wasn't an emergency, but they might need treatment for, you might need to assess somebody's capacity. One thing that's really helpful that maybe helping you guys too is the Mental Welfare Commission. This is my plug here a little bit. The Mental Welfare Commission do a lot of good practice guidance that are written very beautifully and very simply, which I love. <laughs> but there is a good practice guidance called Right to Treat. And I certainly think there's a lovely pathway in there that looks at capacity, consent. If you're having difficult consent, you know, getting consent, how you proceed with that. But I would certainly refer your our listeners to have a look at that. There are lots of other ones, but but certainly that in relation to capacity and consent treatment would be I think helpful. Fantastic. Yeah. You can probably put a link up to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that we've been getting all of our presenters to do is to give three top tips, in this case, for folk working around autistic patients in that sort of emergency setting. Uh, top tips, be? I think, for the individual, for the person who's actually managing the emergency, is to really think about keeping calm, presenting with short sentences, with confidence, and trying to interact and get your rapport going with your individual. The second one is really involvement of anybody who can assist us in, in an emergency situation would be important. Like if you have carers, if you have family member, they'll be able to shortcut to a lot of things for you. And I think the third thing is really give consideration to the wider context of the environment, if you can and give consideration to the time it might take the individual to work through and respond to what you're asking. That was maybe four, I think, Dave. <laughs> we'll let you have four. bits and pieces. <laughs> it's so useful to get your insight into how to deal with autistic folk. And I guess, actually, there's a lot of that that's translatable to adults with learning difficulties or with, with sort of wider Absolutely. Uh, issues. For me, some of the basics of how you would communicate and how you would reduce anxiety for somebody really is, is often at the forefront how you would interact with almost anybody, I think, in an emergency. But there's just slight tweaking and certainly different considerations to maybe take into focus if it was somebody who had autism or was autistic. That's fantastic. Mary, thanks so much. For, Thank you. For Thank you very much for inviting me along. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.